Uh, we have not mic checked the cricket yet. I can hear him. I'm pretty sure people in podcast land can hear him. Well, good. Then then they'll have a nice cricket. Hello, you are listening to In the Room, a podcast about making theater and other things with Greg Macklin and Joe Louis Cidio. Hello, Joe. So, In the Room is going to be a podcast about making low budget theater, the writer director relationship, the director producer relationship. We've both produced. Uh, Several plays in various capacities, including a number of each other's works. Yes, I've uh, that I've written and Joe's directed, or that Joe has written and directed, and that I've produced. Um, We're very I, incestuous on this end. Yep, yep, pretty much. We, or we have a healthy creative partnership. You just don't like you want to use the whole heterosexual life partner thing, but I think it sums it up really nicely. I've gotten used to that phrase over the years. I've I've learned to stop objecting. Um, so one of the things is that there's nothing in grad school or academia that necessarily tells you about this kind of stuff, how to find a director or a producer who you really like working with, want to keep working with, how you cast, how you start a good Indiegogo campaign for theater, which is very different for doing one from a movie, how you can get the most out of a very small budget in terms of design elements and publicity. Uh, Joe does a lot of sound design. Uh, you can learn a lot in grad school, but there's also a lot of nuts and bolts that you don't find out until you actually do it. Uh, so, who the hell are we? I'm going to ask Joe to give some of his credentials, which I know he is giving under duress. Well, I just think that credentials is the reason why you listen to a podcast. I mean, if you don't know who I am before you listen to it, there's nothing I'm going to say that's convince you to continue to listen. However, Greg does make a good point that you probably are listening to this without having read anything, because... In the new age of new media, no one reads shit on the internet anymore. <laughs> they just basically hit the YouTube link, and that's basically it. Why do you think the New York Times has such a big little... They put it right there in the middle of like the page, like where essentially the fold would be is their multimedia presentations. And I hate to say it, but that, that tends to be a lot more coherent, to me at least, than a, a lot of the writing, unfortunately. So as a writer, yes, I'm giving over to the new media age and assuming that you don't read anything. However, I will do the credits thing. I started out in doing street theater, essentially, here in Los Angeles. Um, we used to have what was called the Edge of the World Theater Festival, and that's where I cut my teeth. And Edge Fest was basically like any fringe fest. Everyone came into it. Basically, productions walked in the door. You set your space up. You did it. And then usually you had to walk out if you were sharing the space. I used to produce with Urban Ensemble Theater um, Urban Ensemble Theater Collective, and that's where actually, uh, this was through a professor of mine, Rick Mitchell, out of Cal State Northridge, who also uh, introduced me to the Cal State Northridge Playwrights Workshop. I was a poet, and then I went over to the dark side, and I mean, if poetry wasn't a niche uh, art to begin with, I went into an even more niche niche by... by oh, I think poetry's I think poetry's way more niche than theater. I remember getting more dates as a poet. <laughs> At least a lot of, well, that's the thing, a lot of first ones. And that's, that's not, by the way, any, any street cred to, to sort of put out there. But I started in basically that kind of low-budget mentality. Why do we need, like, to fundraise for $1,000 sets when we can do it with a symbol, uh, symbols that you could claim, and helicopters in the background? Helicopters in the background! But going yeah. a word up. We, uh, we that's can... the ghetto birds, by the way, for all of you listening from Iowa or places in the Midwest. <laughs> 
we can also, um, like, the set for 789 is a, uh, which is going up, we'll have a link to the video, it is going on right now through December 15th in L.A., if you're in L.A. Currently up, and you probably haven't seen it yet, if you're listening to this. Written and directed by Joe, uh, produced by me at Studio Stage. Um, we'll have all the information at the end of the podcast. The other thing is, the set for 789 is really good, but it's just rolls of plastic. It's $25 rolls of plastic Don't from Tell them that, and they're really not going to come, come check it out. But it's amazing. You've done amazing work on a low budget. Well, plastic is a th- is the theme of the fall. I mean, unfortunately, what winds up happening is when you use something, you continue to use it because you paid for it one time, and you're trying to get your money's worth. And actually, that was that's a good in terms of the producer director writer relationship because that goes back to another series that we're producing, which is WRNG in Studio City. Yes, we are producing a web series called WRNG in Studio City. By the way, I am cognizant of the fact that I did not complete my street cred, but I'm pretty sure at some point in the podcast I will name drop or fucking place drop anything. So let's continue with WRNG in Studio City. All right, WRNG in Studio City is a web series. As Joe mentioned, a lot of stuff is going on on the web, so we finally decided to embrace that. And uh, No, we actually, that's one of the reasons why we're a performer performance group is we that was in the DNA when we first sat down to talk about doing the company that's right because we know you actors who are listening to this as much as you all claim you love theater it's always amazing to me how off book and memorized you are when we do a shoot for a one day shoot of, of a web series but it is something that's actually kind of fun because you can be much more creative with that visual medium I mean the thing that I like about basically when you talk about cinematic arts, because I think it's all this, sort of the same thing, web series, mm-hmm. movies, film, TV sitcoms, is it's very auteurish. And you have, you can have a little bit more control as a writer, creator, as someone who creates something, which essentially a producer can help manage an idea. But I think really when you're the writer, director, creator of something, you can be like the, the, um, the birth person. I guess you could, it's, it's our male chance to be a woman is we get to give birth to something. <laughs> and as much as you like to think you can manage it, you need to bring in other parents. You need a midwife, which is, yeah. And um, we've now shot nine full episodes of WRNG in Studio City with 10 and 11 mostly wrapped. Joe has directed the first three and um, provided and uh, basically been um, production designer on the special interrogation scenes. Which brings which, us around to the plastic wrap. Which was created in the in the garage with plastic wrap. Because we were looking at the garage and I was like, well, we could tighten it up and The frame garage it. are currently podcasting them, by the way. Yes, because there's a lot of kids stuff here and it needs to be a menacing interrogation scene. And Joe had the brainstorm. I stole let's, from Dexter. Let's go get some plastic, make it look like Dexter. So now those crucial scenes in episode 8 look really menacing. What was nice is we discovered a couple of things is when we did it is that you could filter light through the plastic. That basically, and, and our lighting package is essentially fits in like one of those little Tupperware boxes you see at Home Depot. It's something that I've carried with me since my days of doing street theater early on in Los Angeles back when the dinosaurs were roaming. Basically, stegosauruses used to hang out in Silmar. That's where Silmar got its name. Um, and essentially, it's, it's, it's clip-on lights. It's a couple of colored outdoor halogen kind of lighting style and this this is the thing kids if you're listening to this sure you can pay for the hundred dollar two hundred dollar gel kit but you get really great power out of a colored light an outdoor colored light plus you know you can do a lot of amazing other little things with it plus if you take out the color it can 
It can help you get those really cool noir-ish cinematic effects. We've used them for like everything so far, except for the, the stuff we've done in theaters. Uh, we did a workshop production of Seven Days. Seven uh, Days of Fantasia on the Life of Miles Davis. And the current production of Seven, Eight, Nine, but wanting to basically change the visual of what we were seeing in the garage, came, we came up with the idea of plastic. Now, this also gave birth to another, uh, another uh, one of our productions, which was Ascension, and it was totally in an indirect way. Ascension was done as part of Meet Me at Metro, which Watts Village Theatre Company produces. This was in L.A. this past um, August. What was August really great about it is that we did it at, you know, we were invited, we, were, we got to get invited in um, because a company dropped out. Um, I won't name names, but it was really kind of cool because I worked with Watts Village Theatre Company. The project was really cool because it essentially, it's cultural ridership. It married up the Metro lines, which exist in Los Angeles, for those of you who live in New York, it's like your subways, except we get sunshine and everything, so we get to <laughs> Don't have them Don't mock the New Yorkers. I'm not mocking the New Yorkers. <laughs> I'm just saying that our, our metro system, yes, there is parts of it that exist underground, but most of it exists in the sunlight. Actually, we can totally mock the New Yorkers. It's the whole L.A.-New York rivalry. Yeah, but there's that great bridge that you get to go over where you do get sunlight. And also, too, when you go out to Brooklyn. Brooklyn, yep. you are much more civilized. I will give you that. Although... <laughs> You are the only borough that I've ever, I've ever gotten to stay in when I've ever I've visited New York, so uh, that, that tells you something. Um, but we got to do a show at the Gold Line, and I wanted to have a moment where I had an American flag that was an integral part of that production. And it needed to be my magic object, but I couldn't just fold and unfold the flag. I had to have something kind of cool and spectacular that would come from it. So one of the things that, that I sort of came up with was to have... I had a, a, a magical um, spirit bird come, come out at the, at the climax of the piece. And, and in order to do this, I used a piece of plastic and I paid for some Sharpies. And it took me 14 hours, but I had made a magic spirit bird that came out of my American flag. Oh, by the way, we'll probably link this to some images so that way you can kind of see yes. what the effect looked like. You will, uh, you will be, we will put photos, uh, links to online photos in the description. And I should say that Ascension, uh, Joe's too modest to say so, but it was a competitive, uh, it was a competitive grant process, and it was um, funded. So you ended up paying. Yeah, but everybody that competed got it. We were just. You came in at the last minute. Doesn't right? matter. That's the lesson. Sometimes you have to be because you put that together in what forty-eight hours. You put together a proposal for them in forty-eight hours. Yeah. You got to be ready. Sometimes you got to be ready to grab opportunities because they will come up fast. But this should also go back to our grad school training. We did. We did what was called no shame theater, which I think Greg has a much better foot to stand on in terms of talking about no shame than I do. Exactly. I will say. I will say a little bit about no shame, and also mention that Adam Hahn, another, uh, and Jeff Good, two other veterans of no shame are very active in LA theater and uh, Adam is also a star of WRNG and we hope to have both Adam and Jeff as guests on this show at some point but uh, No Shame Theater taking all the way back to Iowa and properly time traveling thank you um, is an instant theater group you can start one in your city if it doesn't if it doesn't uh, exist, already. Uh, exist already but basically you have five minute slots you have about 15 of them and it is first come, first serve. Usually it starts at 11 p.m. on a Friday night. People can show up with scripts or songs at 10. Or and spoken word pieces. Or spoken word pieces. Monologues, or fiction, monologues. Nonfiction. You can do anything, performance art, in that five minutes, basically as long as it's not you illegal. You've got to tell the rules. It's like Fight Club. Right. There is no three rules. Do not damage the space or its occupants. 
And uh, it has to be under five minutes. And if it's your first time, you go. Yes. And I think those are the three rules of no shame. So you should start a no shame evening in your group. But and nudity is allowed. One of the... I've it seen, is, I've yes. seen Greg's naked ass on stage before. This is true. I got naked for no shame. It was a... We'll tell that story for another podcast. <laughs> I have video. Oh, God. Really? Yes. Jesus. <laughs> Maybe we'll post the it's video. It's a good thing they can only listen and not see. <laughs> Um, but one of the things that the No Shame Aesthetic teaches you is it teaches you to write quickly, it teaches you to really engage with the audience, sometimes theater can get too disconnected from its audience, and it teaches you to work with your imagination and a really low budget, which brings us to Joe's and my very first collaboration, This Is Your Life, uh, which was the very first thing we worked on together, Joe's first year in grad school at Iowa, my final year, um, I had been known as the comedy guy, and... I did funny comedy stuff, but none of it was really deep. And This Is Your Life was sort of my breakout play into deeper material. It's a romantic comedy, but it's a romantic comedy about my parents meeting and falling in love in Berkeley in the 60s, so it needs someone who is attuned to the politics of that era. And I'm not funny. If oh. anything, I was a good counter for this because I worked in docudrama. A lot of the stuff that I did here in Los Angeles was very theatrical-based, but it, I also did... Uh, a piece of my called Textbooks and Fences where I did a right. lot of field interviews. And it actually took place in the same time period as in the early, my parents' story. And in the was, early 70s. Yeah, and it was Greg's. Uh, and so there was a similar crossover to I knew the time period. I also have a, uh, an associate's degree in history, but I'm one of those people that, that's always been a history buff. A lot of my piece work comes from primarily history as jumping off points. But what attracted me to the project, aside from the, the history angle, was that it was a great love story. And I think that it, something I discovered about myself in grad school, which is something that I would never, ever, and I think people who know me would have ever thought this of me, but I am a romantic. <laughs> I mean, yep. sure, I love yep. Four Weddings and a Funeral and a closeted, you know, Hugh Grant romantic comedy, sort of that's my thing. But I never would have thought of that, that would be reflected in my aesthetic and my work. And I really enjoyed that about, about this play. Romantic in terms of, heroes going out and taking on the world and bigger things and, and, and it wasn't just about love and idealism although it did have that in there but it was also about like what happens when when it doesn't work out you know in, in, in which case we always face obstacles and challenges I mean that's the thing is I think that a lot of what I respond to in any kind of artistic work is is failure because so I think it's it I don't get I'm not interested in the sweet valley high everything works out, it's, it's, you live a, a perfect life. I'm much more interested in characters who are trying desperately and not able to get what they want or desire. Which, which ties into the character of Tony, who's someone who really developed in that process. And I'm giving the play away here, but there's four characters, four main characters in the 1960s portion of the play, Patrick, Natalie, Tony, and Jenny. And it's set up so that any two of the four could be the parents, but of course things don't work out for one of the characters, okay, it's Tony, and you sort of have to follow and honor that journey. Um, and that's the thing, even though it doesn't work out with him, he's essential to the other characters and their dynamic, which is, it's like the constellation of life. I mean, there is no ups and downs, it's just like there's all these things laid out, and you don't know what one star will affect, how it will affect the others. And I think Tony is very much like one of those major instigators even if he's not the romantic hero. Uh, 
I want to talk specifically about your dramaturgy work on this with me, because I want to come back to the Kent State Massacre of 1970 was a huge trauma for anyone who was politically involved. It was a national trauma. I mean, even even people, and that's the thing, it affected people who were not there and who, who were not involved. The way my dad talks about it is all of a sudden protesting became something that could get you killed as an American citizen, or even being near a protest, because two of the four kids who were killed at Kent State were not even protesting. They were in the wrong place at the wrong time. But when I had written the scene, I had found it too difficult to write, so I'd sort of had all the characters take a direct address to the audience, but it was really sort of a dramatic departure from the rest of the play, and I thought, oh, there's something wrong here. You need to, I need to fix this, and then you stepped in and said, no, let's try it. What made you do that? Because that was absolutely the right call, I think, but... I think in some ways you have to have what I would term a situational awareness. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of times when I'm directing, I know that it's not about what's being said or the direct action sometimes, but it's about it's about like what the bigger comp what the bigger canvas allows you to do. And for for that particular moment, I really felt that it was about uh, it was a big canvas. It was a, Hey, monkeys. Right. By the way, those are my nieces in the background. <laughs> We're just talking about big canvas. Yeah. They're trying to sneak into the garage. No. But there's an invisible barrier. Uh-uh. Puppy outside. I don't know. She, she's outside. She's outside? Yeah. And we're inside. What's that tell you when the dogs are, you know, moving <laughs> the life out there? What time is it? When is bye bye, month. Bye-bye. We're talking here. We're, we're trying, trying, we're trying to talk to people. Can I come? She didn't come in, but you can only <laughs> be silent unless spoken to. As okay. The 1950 Hello. Hello. Hello, Hamadi. So getting back in the big composition. <laughs> Bigger canvas, yeah. Sometimes life just walks in like that, and it's messy and it's chaotic, and I think that that was the best way to sort of capture that in terms of the Kent State moment, is that it was all these perspectives and just walking in, walking, welcoming, welcoming that into the theatrical space. Um, I remember actually sort of we got to, to, to really, and this is this is done in Iowa, and those of you who are listening who are Iowa alum in Theater B, and not wanting it to just be stuck onto the stage, but wanting characters to be able to walk out into the audience and play into the bigger space. Um, but yeah, I, I remember that, that, you know, and of course this is me trying to remember correctly, <laughs> it was how to basically embrace human chaos but in a way that you could take it in as an event. And, no, I, I you know, it's, it's funny. It's, I can intellectualize it, but it's hard to feel it. And I think at the time, I really wanted people to feel it. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, it was, it was much more essential to me that it was visceral. And sometimes you can process so many different layers happening at a certain time. We actually, it was a dance moment, too. And, and, and it is, unfortunately for me, sometimes a dramatic cheat. But well, I no, I like I like that because you incorporate dance into a lot of stuff. Like you mentioned, Ascension um, Seven Eight Nine has a little bit of that and a really funny sort of comedic break where one of the guys dances with the guns. Yeah, it's there's something there's something very primal and also very kind of organizational about dance. I mean, you hear music and everything falls into a rhythm. There was a great car commercial for I think it was Volkswagen or VW. Where people, the 
person's listening to a beat yes, and they look out. Yes, and everything's, we should up. be able to find that. Sometimes things just sync up with the slogan. We should be able to find that online. I'm sure that's online. And I think that's yeah. the thing, is I think, I think chaos itself has a music to it. And it's sometimes just about finding that. What we used the Buffalo Springfield song um, think, for that moment. No, no, we used um, Ohio by Crosby, oh, okay. Stills, and Nash. Nash. Yep. Yeah, they're the same thing. Yeah. Um, well, Ohio was a good choice because it's not quite as well known. Uh, Buffalo Springfield, for what it's worth, it gets used everywhere for the 60s. Yeah. So I think you made the right choice. That's another thing. You have a really good sense of music. Like, well, your the, playlists are always good. Well, one of the things I do is part of my process is to make all the actors, everyone coming into it, all my collaborators uh, created a CD because I create CDs and playlists when I listen to this stuff. Like, The Sound of Screaming Children. <laughs> this is, this will, well, see, the thing is, is we got to record the girls now because we'll use it when we do Pillow Man. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> I think there should be, like, little little hymnal songs that are sung by children that would be little great act. That's, that scene breaks for it. That's Martin McDonough's The Pillow Man, probably one of the best plays of the past of the uh, 2000 to 2010 decade. One of our favorite plays, which should have won should have won. Should have won the Tony. Yes. Yes, was nominated for a Tony, did not win. Um, people being squeamish and it being America, they just couldn't embrace the fact that it was such great art. I remember 2005. I don't remember what did win the Tony that year, but... <laughs> By the way, if you know you don't suffer from ADD, then, then, then you probably don't get what's going on, but we're talking from Pillow Man to Kent State and having <laughs> little girls running around in the background. Right now I have a Thai massage happening with my big toes. I mean, it's you have to embrace like the technological age. It's a self-inflicted time massage. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it's okay. Um, I want to also talk about um, if I can link this chaos to casting. Casting, um, because you, we were casting together, of course, and with the way the Iowa casting process is set up. They do give you a theater space during the year, which is great. They don't really let you have very many grad actors, most of the grad actors. So we knew we were going to be working with a pool of undergrad actors. And we had a freshman come in named Lane Sheets. Um, hi, Lane. And I sort of... Um, Lane's not in the computer. He might listen to this. Well, now that there's a little girl screaming, I'm sure he will. Yeah, we may have to cut out some of the little girls screaming. I'll talk about the little girl screaming. Pause and resume. Yeah. That's not fun. They didn't hear me get to strangle the little girl. No. <laughs> I wouldn't strangle little girls. They're related to me. They're my nieces. Yes. And you are their Tio Jose. I think we need to work on your Spanish. And by the way, I'm Joe. I'm not Jose. I'm Joe Luis, but I'm yes. not Jose Luis. But you have a character in 789, an offstage character named Tio Jose. Tio Jose. Tio Jose. Actually, based off of my real deal, Jose, ah. he used to live in my Nana's basement. Ah. And what was interesting about about Tio Jose is, you know, he was a bracero. He would travel America um, by train when you could like do that stuff and not get like a bad rap. And he he worked all over the country. And he's unfortunately, I never he, he passed away. I never got a chance to sit down and really talk with him. I mean, he always used to invite me in and used to call me Chespadito. Um, and and there was something about generationally that was lost with him on me. My other uncles, my uh, my deal Fernando and my deal Ernie, um, basically guys who, who inspired a lot of my characters whenever I write about like the urban Pacoima experience. 
I mean, they show up a lot. But Martil Jose, I, I missed an opportunity there. And I think that's one of the things that I think the play espouses, uh-huh. is that there is this distance between the, the uncle, which is his mother, um, the character Lupe's mother's brother, who lives down there and never is up there or hanging out with them. And I think a lot of it's culturally the language. I think when you come to America, one of the things that you're always made to do is to give up your language. Mm-hmm. You have to speak in English. I mean, it is a melting pot, and it's always kind of cool. I love Minnesota, because in Minnesota you see stuff that's in in, 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 in uh, Hmong, in that culture, um, and then English, <laughs> and then Spanish on different signs, which is cool, because it's L.A. in that way. Yeah. Is that it, it's represented in signs and, and stuff like that, but... In con- casual conversation, it's always English, and that's the thing. Is I think one of the things that divorces you from it divorces you from where you came from. Mm, and I, I'm one of those Latino people that that's I spoke Spanish when I was a kid, but as I continued to get educated, my my parents moved us out to Santa Clarita, so I was a Latino kid growing up in primarily a white dominance. It was all white. It was me and then my younger sisters and then my younger un- uncles and aunts. We were in school until fourth grade when Robert Villalobos showed up. There could have been other Latinos, but they were just totally passing. But it, it's really isolating. That's really... Interesting that's... in a tangent. We, well, no, no, no. We've never seen say... a travel in a straight arc here. No, we're but not that very makes, Aristotelian on this that show. Makes for, that makes for good podcasts. I was going to say, one of the things I think, one of the reasons I think we connect good so well... Good podcast is sexy women. Sexy female voices. Because then the assumption, that leaves it to, totally to the audience's imagination. Like, who's he talking to? Which we should have sexy women on our show. I'll I'll make a note of that. If there are any women who do theater in L.A. who would like to be guests on this show, by all means. Um, but actors, actors. Yes, lots of actors. But if you're a writer, you know it's just going to be like re- reaffirming a certain kind of thing that you'll never hook up with. Them. Will Greg and Joe get female guests? Will Greg and Joe get dates? How do you reserve tickets for seven, eight, nine? Find out in the suspenseful conclusion of. In the Room, Episode 1. Translation, we split the podcast in half because 48 minutes felt a little intimidating for a first episode. If you have questions you would like answered on the podcast about producing, writing, directing theater on low budgets, or on anything at all, email me, Greg Macklin, M-A-C-H-L-I-N, at gmail.com with the subject line, podcast. Check out the iTunes episode description for links to the VW commercial, to the music we sampled today, to a video promo for 789 Joe's Play, and for all our social media goodness. We would love it if you liked Company of Strangers and WRNG in Studio City on Facebook and followed both of them on Twitter. Uh, you can also follow me and Joe personally, and Joe has a YouTube channel under the name Louis Scribe, L-U-I-S-S-C-R-I-B-E, and you can subscribe to his channel. We hope you've enjoyed listening. Part two is about 22 minutes long and picks up immediately where we left off. That's Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Ohio, about Kent State, to play us out. Uh, this is the end of part one of In the Room, a podcast about theater and other activities that may be hazardous to your health but are a heck of a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs>